Well, good morning. It's good to be with you here in Hamilton today. I bring greetings and best wishes from the church family in Peterhead, who right now will be gathered in praise of the Lord too. Um, thank you for the warm welcome and for the invitation to bring God's word here this morning. It's always a, an encouragement to serve him and his people. And on another level, it's really, really good to get this mask off as well. So that's a, a wonderful thing. And I love to uh, just want to say here, the instructions uh, on the lectern are a real encouragement too. A former minister of mine told the story about 20 years ago now of his one occasion where he preached in the tent hall in Glasgow. And those words, sir, we would see Jesus were on the back hall, sorry, back wall of the hall, so that every preacher would see them and be challenged. So I feel suitably challenged as I bring God's word today. This visit has been a long time coming. I was invited to preach here about a year ago, and the whole COVID thing meant that we had to do things electronically and from a distance. So I am delighted to be with you here today and in the company of so many of you. It's a real blessing after a short period of sporadic church attendance at best in the last year to be able to come in such numbers and with the sense of hope that we might finally be emerging from the constraints that have kept us separated from one another for so long. Certainly has been an exercise in patience for the church, for whom fellowship and gathering together are crucially important, which leads us into the subject of our study this morning. So far in the series on the fruits of the Spirit that we've heard about love, the highest of all virtues and the very foundation of godliness, joy, the deep and abiding contentment and security that come from a relationship with God, and peace, that sense of wholeness and well-being that we experience in Christ. Which brings us this morning to the virtues on Paul's lists that bring harmony to relationships, beginning with the spiritual fruit of forbearance or patience. We're going to open God's Word and read two passages of Scripture from the book of Colossians today, and we'll dip into these as we consider this topic together. So if you have a Bible to hand, I'd encourage you to open it and read along with me. I'm reading from the NIV. I'm sure you'll cope if you have a different translation in front of you. And let's read from chapter 1 and begin at verse 9. This is the Word of God. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now just over the page on Colossians chapter 3, reading from verse 5. Again, this is his word. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. 
Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another in any, if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading from his precious word. Let's pray together before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that your word is to us. We thank you for the revelation of yourself that you give us in these pages and the revelation of your will for your creation, for your church, and for each one of your sons and daughters. But we know, Lord, that alone we will never glean from these verses all that we should, but that we need your help. Minister to us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Equip and enable us through these words, Father. Encourage us and rebuke us according to our need. We ask these things for our blessing and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Is there, a, is there a clicker for the PowerPoint? Or do I just, is there someone I have to point to? Point to you. Right, gotcha. Dallas Theological Seminary is a large and thriving Bible college in the USA with more than 2,500 students currently enrolled for study and over 15,000 graduates from over 100 countries serving around the world. In its early days, however, these kinds of statistics must have seemed very far off as the college struggled financially. At one stage, the seminary was in desperate need of $10,000 if they were to keep their work going. And it was at this time that the renowned Bible scholar and lecturer, Harry Ironside, at a DTS prayer meeting prayed, Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Please sell some of those cattle to help us meet this need. Shortly after that prayer meeting, a check for $10,000 arrived in the mail sent days earlier by a friend who had no knowledge of Ironside's prayer or even the extent of the seminary's hardship. The attached note said simply, that the money came from the sale of some of the donors' cows. We have all, I'm sure, heard such stories of answered prayer and the abundant provision of the Lord poured out through human mediators who are oblivious to the need that they are meeting. But what we have here in Colossians 1 is something different. It's a prayer offered by the apostle on behalf of the believers in the church at Colossae for something he knows that they, and indeed every believer, needs. Having offered his thanksgiving in verses 3 to 8 for their positive reaction to the gospel as it was shared with them, Paul continues from verse 9 with his petition on their behalf, that having started their walk with the Lord well, that they would not succumb to complacency or apathy, but that they would continue on the right course. He says there from verse 9, for this reason, since the day, sorry, I'm in the wrong page. Yes, sorry, from verse 9, he says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Paul prays that the Colossians will grasp the will of God as revealed by the Lord, but not the will of God as we often understand it when it concerns the directions of individual lives or informs our decision-making. What the apostle speaks of here is the deep and enduring understanding of the revelation that God has made through his son and how that discloses his will for the universe as a whole as well as for the Colossian Christians. 
that it does not please the Lord to allow humankind to destroy themselves on account of the transgressions and rebellion that disgrace us in his eyes. And that true to his word given in the third chapter of Genesis, he would make provision to deal with that sin so that we would not have to forfeit the relationship with the Lord that we were created for. Because as revealed to Abraham, as a single descendant of his that would be the one who would bring the blessing of salvation to people of every nation, has come. Because, as revealed to David, the one that would wield authority and sovereignty on his throne forever, overcoming death to reign for all time and beyond, has come. Because, as revealed in the symbols of the new covenant, his son has come, enduring a broken body, shedding his precious blood, and laying down his life as a punishment for our wrongdoing. So that by coming to him in faith, we may be forgiven our sins, we may instead be clothed in Jesus' own righteousness, and we may look forward to everlasting life by his side. This is a pretty wordy way of saying what the Lord has given us so much more succinctly in John 3.16, isn't it? That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And it is the prayer of the Apostle that the knowledge of this and that the understanding of what this means will furnish us with the ability to make good and correct decisions that are in accordance with God's will as we witness and as we minister and as we fulfill our roles for the advance of his kingdom. But this Christian development is not to be a purely academic exercise. The changes that are to be observable in us do not stop with a mental transformation that changes our perspectives and our attitudes. They must lead to a behavioral transformation too. They must lead to a life that, as verse 10 says, is worthy of the Lord. What does such a life look like? Well, Paul tells us here from the tail end of verse 10. It is bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. He starts by telling us that such a, a life will be characterized by effectiveness in our good works, meaning that what we do to serve the Lord and serve others will be appropriate in attending and encouraging our neighbors and glorifying him. And that instinctive knowledge concerning how we serve effectively, well, of course, that comes from our progression and our development, our increase in the knowledge of God. And this pairing is pretty much the Christian life in a nutshell, isn't it? If we understand the will of God, then we will in love share the good news of salvation through faith in Christ, and we will proclaim him for his goodness and his faithfulness. That's the Great Commission. And if we are to be faithful and obedient to the Lord, and are to be found doing good for the blessing and benefit of others, well, is that not the outworking of the Great Commandment? And when we think of those two features of the life that pleases the Lord, and see how they are captured here in this verse, speaking as it does of bearing good fruit and growing in good knowledge, well, there's a Genesis 1 undertone to this verse, isn't there? There is creation language used in this description, which reveals and affirms that the Lord, through the response of his children to the gospel, confirms his original purpose for humankind, which is to establish them in his image. That's the transforming work of the gospel in our lives, brothers and sisters. That's what's going on as we are made new creations in Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in the hearts of every single person who put their faith and trust in Jesus. God is fashioning us according to the way he made the first man and woman. He is crafting us to be what he intended human beings to be prior to the fall of man 
and the entry of sin into God's perfect world. And this is impossible without the influence and the work of God himself. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 tells us that Jesus is the source of the wisdom and the knowledge that we read about here. And verse 11 of chapter 1 that we read together tells us that the strengthening that he achieves in us is according to his capability and his desire. Now coping with the difficulties and challenges of the Christian life is not an easy thing. But the Lord in his grace and mercy does not ask us to persist in our own strength and by force of our wavering and fragile human will. He gives us what he demands. It is God that strengthens us, God that enables us, God that is shaping us and honing us and sanctifying us into a greater likeness of his Son. It is God who with all power and with glorious might expresses his fundamental glory in empowering his children to be witnesses in our communities and to reflect the light of Jesus into the very darkest corners of this world. And with this enabling, he activates in us two related qualities affirmed by the apostle in the 11th verse. Endurance and patience. So after 10 minutes, we finally get to patience. Thank you for your patience. Well, how are we defining what patience is. What is it? And how does it differ from endurance, which sounds like kind of the same thing? Well, the common theological definitions identify endurance as what faith, hope, and love bring to an apparently impossible situation. It's the quality that allows us to bear and withstand scenarios that we would otherwise be crushed by. We are here in good numbers today, which means that the church family of HBC have not yielded to despair following over a year of being locked out of your building and deprived of the one-to-one -one fellowship that we are so encouraged by as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's on account of endurance. But as we said at the beginning, patience is a relational quality, which means that patience is defined as what faith, hope, and love exhibit to an apparently impossible person. But we need more than a dictionary definition of this if we're going to identify it and demonstrate it in our walk. We need to see examples of it that we can imitate. And of course, the best place that we can look to see this kind of patience is in God himself, the source of genuine patience. The wisdom and knowledge and the strengthening that empower us to be patient are, after all, divinely imparted. The indwelling spirit is the instigator and generator of this patience. It is a fruit of his ministry in every believer. And so it is to the Lord that we must look for a picture of it. And there are many examples that we find throughout the pages of Scripture. This is brilliant, I have to say, there's at least one person hanging on my every word, that's great. <laughs> Peter Head, right now, we are journeying through the life and times of Abraham in Genesis 12 to 25. We had the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah last Sunday, and next time we're in the cave outside Zoar with Lot and his daughters, God willing. So believe me when I tell you, I appreciate the break this week. <laughs> but a few chapters earlier in Genesis 15, as God makes his covenant with the patriarch, we see his prophetic statement about Israel's slavery in Egypt, and in it a spectacular expression of what patience looks like. Reading from verse 13 of that chapter, it says this, Then the Lord said to him, that's Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be, a will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. 
You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Why is there a delay in the return of God's people to the land that he has given them? It's because the sin and wickedness of its current occupants, the Amorites, is yet to reach its full measure. Even though their people are ignorant of Yahweh, even though they practice idolatry, and even though their moral centers are totally disconnected from what God insists in his children, still he exercises incredible patience with them. Patience that is far beyond anything that we can conceive of or comprehend. Fast forward a few chapters to Sodom and Gomorrah. Burning sulfur comes crashing down to earth and wipes out the cities of the plain and all who live in them. Not at the first signs of rebellion. Not when a handful of them come off the ethical rails descending into perversion and exploitation of the weak and vulnerable. But when the remaining righteous population numbers only one, that being Lot himself. Of course, even before we reach the patriarchal phase of history in the book of Genesis, we remember God's announcement to Noah. His plans to bring comprehensive devastation to the whole planet. And in his patience, he waited 120 years before the rains fell and the disaster arrived. Why do we find these long periods of patient inactivity? Is it because God wants to give sinful humankind the maximum opportunity to enlarge and amplify their guilt? Figuratively speaking, is he giving us enough rope to hang ourselves with? Not at all. God describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6, as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And the refusal to respond in judgment in a reactive, knee-jerk manner in the face of ingrained and repeated transgressions and the total moral decay of those who don't love him is what this character statement looks like in practice. This is lived out patience. And we see more of this as we move into the New Testament, don't we? Paul, the very same apostle who writes to the Colossians, has a particularly relevant perspective on God's patience, given the persecution of the early church that he was heavily involved in. Because had the Lord brought him to justice as he nodded approvingly at the stoning of Stephen, or as he carried men and women off to prison for the crime of putting their faith and trust in Jesus for their salvation, what would have happened? Had God acted justly and punished this sin impatiently, hurriedly, spontaneously, then what would have been the outcome for Paul? It would have been spiritual death. It would have been eternal separation from the Lord and his fellowship and his love and his blessing. But is this the will of the Lord? To condemn and to destroy and to bring judgment on a first offense? Absolutely not. We've thought on the will of God already this morning, and it is in his grace and in his mercy and in his love to bring salvation to those unable to save themselves. It is to offer an escape from destruction. And for that to happen, it means allowing us to make mistakes before we meet the risen Lord. And the apostle testifies to this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, where he writes, I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now let's let's not rather get this bent out of shape here. God does not take pleasure from our failures. He doesn't find our selfishness and our godlessness endearing. God hates sin, all sin. But the fact that he allows us to commit sin considering the personal affront that it is to him 
shows the extent of his patience and he models it for his servants too. Because our patience and our relationships with others must extend beyond the line at which we become offended or wounded or appalled if we are to fulfill our calling as the people of God. It has always been the way for his children that we suffer in his service, but that our discomfort must be overtaken by the privilege and importance of our task. Look at the Old Testament prophets. Look at what they had to endure in order to bring the word of the Lord to inattentive audiences. And look at the importance of patience in their ministries. Because even when thrown into a cistern to die, Jeremiah remained faithful to his task and shared God's message with the king. Even when threatened with a brutal death, Elijah remained faithful to his task and assisted in a, a demonstration of the power of God on Mount Carmel as a call to a repentant and idolatrous people. Even when thrown into a lion's den, Daniel proclaimed the name of God. Even when denounced and expelled by the priest of Bethel, Amos continued to advance the word of God. And what is it that gave these biblical heroes the patience that they needed to work for the kingdom? It's their treasuring of the will of God, yes. But it's also their trust in the power of God. You see, a failure to bring our enemies to justice when we are weaker than they are and when we have no authority over them is not patience, that's impotence. But God's delay in judgment is certainly patience because he is sovereign over the whole earth and everyone in it. Because he has the license and the mandate and the power to bring justice whenever he wants to. But in his grace and compassion, he gifts the sinner time. And this is such an encouragement to us as we demonstrate patience too. Because we know that nobody embarrasses the Lord. We know that nobody runs rings around God. We know that no one can pull the wool over his eyes. We know that the relentless aggression against him and his purposes and his people will lead to a judgment that cannot be avoided. We know and trust the certainty of God's justice. And therefore we have the capacity to be patient because the Lord will get it right when dealing with his enemies. And that is why we can lay down our pride. That is why we need not be concerned at how turning the other cheek to the insults of this world might make us look in the eyes of those who know only a sense of justice that is based on immediate retribution alone. That is why we are able to lay down our timetable in favor of the Lord's, so that his work of leading sinners to the foot of the cross can be fulfilled in his good time so that his grace may be seen, so that his love may be exhibited, and so that his will may be done. And as we turn to those verses that we read in Colossians chapter 3, we find a recap of what the redeemed and transformed people of God must look like as a result of what God has enabled in us and what he has demonstrated to us. Colossians 3 verse 12 says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's a long drive down from Peterhead to Hamilton on a Sunday morning. The good thing is there's not much traffic. But I did see a number of caravans and camper vans as I came down the A90, which is brilliant because it's a dual carriageway, so you don't get stuck behind them when you can get out and around them. 
But it does make me wonder every time I see them what the attraction is at taking a bit of your own surroundings and dumping it down somewhere else and calling that a holiday. I always feel that part of the joy of being away is changing your surroundings entirely and experiencing something different. I don't mean to insult anyone who has a caravan or a camper van. That's just the way my mind works. But as the apostle writes these verses, it's this sense of changing from the familiar that dominates his thinking here. Whatever has characterized us in the past, whatever we have bound our identity to, whether it's nationality or race or politics or religious background, however we have introduced ourselves to this world previously, it must change when we give our hearts and our lives to Jesus. Every barrier that our identity has built must come down. For once we have put our faith in him, once we have repented of our sin and asked his forgiveness, once we have crowned him as the Lord of our lives, then our identity is in Jesus Christ. And as his children, we must surrender to the sanctifying work of his spirit and look like him as we minister in this sin-broken world. And there are five graces that are listed here in verse 12 that must be evidenced in the believer. We are to exhibit compassion, the deep sensitivity to the needs and challenges of others. We are to demonstrate humility, the readiness to forego what we are warranted for the sake of others. Our gentleness, which is the outworking of humility in our relationships with others, must also be evident. And of course, kindness is the umbrella term for the basic attitude that we should have toward other people. How are you doing with those, Christian? Can people see these qualities in you? Are the people in your workplace or in your neighborhood or in your circle of friends unsurprised when they learn of your faith in the Lord? Or are they stunned because they have seen insufficient evidence of kindness and compassion and humility and gentleness? And what about the fifth item on that list? What about patience? Because these other four are qualities that we can radiate that aren't necessarily relational. We can be humble. We can do kind things without having to worry about how those things are received. But patience is different because it is a response to others. It's our reaction to the reaction of others when they encounter our compassion and our kindness and our humility. And you know, this is where the rubber hits the road, Christian. We can speak so positively, we can, we can think so positively about how swathes of people who we've never met are made in the image of God and how we must love them and cherish them and serve them. And then we meet them. And they do not always appreciate us. And they do not always like us. And they do not always even respect us. And worse, they don't respect the Lord either. And this is where the patience that Paul identifies as a crucial quality in the Christian believer must be drawn upon. What do you think when you hear stories about the vandalism of church buildings? I remember a break-in at a church. It's before I was a Christian, actually. A break-in of a church that my family were connected with. And they caused a horrendous mess and did some really unkind things to the fixtures and fittings and all sorts. It was, it was horrible. What do you think when you hear stories like that? What do you think when you see kids leaving school after the Gideons have been in, tearing and discarding pages of the New Testaments have just been handed? How do you feel when you hear some sneering atheist disparaging the Christian faith, calling God the mythical sky daddy, calling believers superstitious simpletons? Are you reacting to this? Is it getting your back up? This is where patience is required. This is where, in spite of every button being pressed by an antagonist, 
we refuse to abandon the relationship that we have with those people. Where we refuse to stop loving them. Where we refuse to stop telling them that sin and death have been overcome through Jesus' work on the cross. Brothers and sisters, I've never vandalized a church. And I've never destroyed a Bible. But I was one of those who called Christians fools. And called their faith an emotional crutch. Before the Lord confronted me with my sin and introduced me to his son. And without his patience, I would have been lost and I would have deserved it. And it's the same for all of us, isn't it? Whether we have been obstructive to him or whether we have been apathetic to him, we are only here. We are only God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved because of his patience with us. Patience that the world does not understand patience that we see with these other graces of chapter 3 verse 12 in the Lord Jesus Christ and his mission and his ministry on this earth for who better reflects these things than him who in humility left the glory of heaven to take on the role of a servant whose compassion and kindness and love are so great that he went willingly to the cross to pay the penalty of our transgressions enduring the violence of Roman torturers to suffer the wounds that would heal us And then to take his place at his father's side in glory where he patiently waits to return. To have his enemies made his footstool. And to take his people home. If we love Jesus and we are growing and keeping in step with the spirit. Then we must and we will demonstrate endurance and patience. That witness to the forbearance of the Lord. And that proclaim his grace to those who do not yet know him, no matter how they interact with us. In doing so, we establish that our hope is in him, and we also assert his will for this world. But of course, we remember that we do not practice patience in isolation. We've not just to become stoic and stand and suffer the slings and arrows of our enemy's words. The fruit of the Spirit that is the subject of this sermon series is presented in Galatians 5 as a single thing, not a collection of virtues. And we cannot look at the list that the Apostle has given us there and think of them as being nine different jewels that we can aspire to hold because they are nine facets of the same dazzling gem which testifies to our belonging to the Lord and to our cooperation with his work of sanctification. A work that is at the same time miraculous, but that makes use of the ordinary means of grace. The reading and exposition of Scripture, a life of prayer, worship of God, obedience to baptism, gathering around the Lord's table. That is walking with the Spirit every day of our lives, brothers and sisters. And this doesn't lead to sanctification by self-effort. This is understanding of His methods and is using the gifts that God has given all of us to keep in step with him. This is how we cultivate a greater yield of spiritual fruit. May we all see our fruitfulness increase as he directs our course. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this passage from it. Lord, we thank you that in Christ our old sinful human nature no longer is able to dominate our thoughts and deeds. 
but that your spirit is contending with it daily. We ask for your help, Lord, as we seek to crucify our degenerate selves and keep in step with the rhythms and the routines of the Holy Spirit. For we want to have the Spirit bear much fruit through us, your children. And as we have been thinking on one part of that spiritual fruit today, Father, we pray that as your word has said, you will strengthen us, that endurance and patience may be evident in our approach and our response to the situations and people that we face that are difficult. Lord, it hurts us when people are disrespectful to you. It hurts us when our brothers and sisters are marginalized and persecuted and mistreated because they trust you. But we do not know every detail of your plans. We do not know what you have in mind for those who oppose the advance of your kingdom in the here and now. And so we ask that you would remind us of our need to be patient and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Plant these things in our hearts and minds, Lord, and use them to refine and purify your children for our blessing and for your greater glory. Hear our prayers this morning, Lord, as we offer them in Jesus' name. Amen.